through 12. It can be found starting on page 807 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Everett Metters. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Community Church. I want to welcome you this morning. Glad that you can be with us. And we are glad that we have this opportunity to worship together and to hear God's word. Join me as I pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your only Son to be our Deliverer, to be Jesus who will save his people from their sins, to be your anointed King to rule over the nations and to break the curse over this world. Lord, we thank you. Father, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts this morning that you would enable us to hear your word. Lord, that you would enable me to speak your word. That you would guard my lips in this time, Lord. And that you would lead us to rejoicing and worship at the coming of our King. Thank you, Lord. So there's a song that I like that I learned a long time ago called Nothing But a Child by the singer Steve Earle, and it opens this way. 
Once upon a time in a far off land, wise men saw a sign and set out across the sand. And then it talks about their long journey and how they followed a star traveling day and night until finally they come to the place that they've been seeking and they scarce believe their eyes. They'd come so many miles. This miracle they prized was nothing but a child. And they come to the place where Jesus is and, and it's, it's just a child. And, and what does that mean for the wise men? And it's not a theologically reliable song and so I'm not commending it to you um, in that way. I just think it's a really pretty song. And, and the fact that it encapsulates some of the longing and dreaming that surrounds this story of these magi traveling from somewhere in the east because they've seen something amazing in the heavens that causes them to go to Jerusalem to see what this is, to worship this king of the Jews. And I want to call us this morning to not just hear the same story of the wise men that we've always heard, partly because for many of us, the story of the wise men that we've always heard is either wrong or embellished or exaggerated or filled with made-up names and events. Um, We want to hear the story that is here, the one that Mary just read for us. To hear this story and to see as we can what the wise men saw and to respond in the way that they did with worship. So our idea this morning is that if pagan astronomers will rise up and seek a newborn king that's not of their own country, how much more should we rejoice that our king has come, go to our king, and worship Christ our King. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to begin where this story does. In Judea, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, we want to rejoice that the king has come. And he has come originally in the days of Herod the king. And what does that mean to us? But that Jesus came to a time and place to people who were at home in their own land, but who were still in exile. If we look back at the history, the background of this story, 600 years before, almost 600 years before, the people of Judah had been carried away, they'd been conquered and deported by the nation, by the empire of Babylon because of their sin. This was God's judgment brought upon Judah because of their injustice, because of their greed, because, most of all, their idolatry, that they refused to to fully, wholeheartedly worship their God who had called them. So God brought the Babylonians down on the kingdom of Judah and took them off to exile. 
And surrounding this event, there were prophets who came and warned them, turn, repent, stop stop your idolatry, stop your sin. But even if you don't, God will still raise up a remnant. And so many of the prophets are filled with these promises that yes, there's going to be judgment and, and, and exile, but there's going to be a glorious restoration. There, there are promises about how the nations will stream to Jerusalem, how Gentiles will grab a Jew on the street and say, teach us the word of God. There's going to come a time of restoration. And I want to read one particular prophecy of restoration, which is from Isaiah chapter 60, starting in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you and the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. That was the hope that these people took away with them to Babylon, those who heard it, those who remembered, those who believed, that there would come a day when they would be brought back to their land. And the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, that had been separated, and the kingdom of Israel had been taken off into exile a hundred years before, that the kingdoms would be reunited. Jeremiah prophesies of a king who would break the yoke of the oppressor, and who would reunite the kingdom. And so the people went, and, 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 and the few of them, the remnant, held this hope for 70 years while they were in exile in Babylon. And then in a night, the empire of Babylon fell, and the empire of Persia raised up. And Cyrus, the king of the Persians, declared that the people of Judea could return to their home. And so these people traveled all the way from Babylon back to Judah to a land that was ruined, to Jerusalem and a temple that had been demolished and torn down, the walls of the city lying in ruins, the temple destroyed. And, and there was a small remnant of Israel And there were people of Judah, but they were not the reunited kingdom. And while they had a good governor, Zerubbabel, who was of the line of Judah, of the line of King David, 
they didn't have their own king. They were still under the rule of the emperor of the Persians. And time passed. And 250 years later, the emperor of the empire of Persia fell like that to Alexander the Great. And now the Jews were under the rule of a Greek king. And 30 years later, Alexander died like that. And, the, and, and his kingdom was divided up. And they found themselves under the rule of one of his generals who was, who was ruling over Egypt. And that continued for 100 years. Until one of his generals who was ruling over Syria drove out the Egyptians. And established Syrian rule over Judah. And about 20 years after that, the Syrian king went to Jerusalem and defiled the new rebuilt temple and declared that he was God and the people of Judah rose up under Judas Maccabeus and his brothers. And they fought a guerrilla war and they ended up bringing independence from Syria. And now, the people of Judah were ruled by their own king, who was a Hasmonean, who was from the tribe of Levi and not from the tribe of David, and who was corrupt, and who was followed by another corrupt king, who was followed by another corrupt king, until the Romans came in and overthrew the Hasmonean king, and conquered Jerusalem, had incorporated Judea into their empire. And then about 40 BC, a very clever political operative who lived near Judea, his, fa- his father was an Idumean. Idumea is the, the area that in, in ancient uh, biblical times they knew as Edom. So the Idumeans are related to the people of Judea. His mother was a Nabataean, an Arab, so he is not a Jew. But this man, Herod, is friends with Mark Antony, who is one of those ruling Rome after the fall of Julius Caesar. And Herod persuades Antony to name him king of Judea. And he goes back, he conquers the kingdom, and now Herod is the king. He's not quite Jewish. He is a very brilliant politician. He's not ruling under his own power, but by the authority of Rome. And when Antony falls, he cleverly insinuates himself with Octavian, who becomes Augustus, the emperor of Rome. He's he's a brilliant architect and builder, and, and there are many great structures that Herod put up that you can still see today if you go to Israel but they're mostly classical Greek structures. He built temples for pagan gods. But he's the king of Judea. This is the one who's ruling Judea. These are the days in which Jesus is born. Herod's also a very violent man, a tyrannical man. When it came time for him to die, one of the things that he did was 
to send out a summons for all the chief rulers of the people to, uh, to be gathered together in Jerusalem so that they could be executed when he died, so that there would be mourning when he died. This is the man who is ruling Judea when the Magi come. These are the people that, the people of Judea, that had hoped for this restoration of a glorious, renewed kingdom where the nations would stream to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, where people would seek and, 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 and like I said, grab a Jew on the street to say, teach us the law so that we might honor your God. And what they have is Herod. And a corrupt high priesthood and politically conniving priests. And so they had received these promises of restoration and they had been brought back to their land and there was great rejoicing in that. And the temple was rebuilt and there was great rejoicing in that. But it is as though even though they're in their home, they're still in exile. And here are these magi. And we don't know how many of them there are. We know they brought, they gave, we know they gave three gifts. So tradition says there are three of them. But there could have been 30 of them. There could have been two of them. They're, there's, they're plural, so there's at least two. We know that. Um, the magi come. And magi are... A, a priestly, astrological, astronomical caste and tribe within the, the, the Persian and the Babylonian cultures. So, for instance, in Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar is gathering people to interpret his dreams, one of the groups of people he gathers are the Magi. And when they can't interpret his dream, but Daniel can because of revelation from God, Herod appoints Daniel as chief of his advisors. And so, so there is a Jewish influence, perhaps through Daniel and through the exiled community in Babylon, that can familiarize these magi with the Jewish scriptures and with the prophecies and the promises. And so that's important to remember. And so these fellows have seen a star that they have been interpreted as meaning that a king for the Jews has been born. They're not Jews, but they see that a king, a, a king for the Jews, important enough that his birth claimed in the heavens. And so they have risen up and they have traveled possibly 800 miles, possibly more, possibly less, because we don't know where they came from. Because all, day, all Matthew tells us is, Magi from the east have come. They've seen something. They've been looking for something. They've been observing the signs of the heavens and have come. And there's, there's a lot of really interesting speculation about this. There's a fascinating documentary uh, by Rick Larson called the Bethlehem Star, or his, his website's bethlehemstar.com, that interprets what this could possibly be. And, you know, he's got modern-day as, as, uh, 
modern-day astronomy software that can show you what the skies would have looked like on a given day at a given time 2,000 years ago. So he can show you this is what it would have looked like over Bethlehem on December 25th, 1 BC, if you want to see that. He has a really fascinating uh, documentary. There's another very interesting book uh, by a guy named Colin Nichol called The Great, Great Christ Comet that just came out, talking about how this, is a, this was a, uh, a, 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 an ancient comet that indicated to the Magi what was going on. And there's lots of other speculation. But all we know is they saw a star. They saw something bright in the sky that indicated to them a king of the Jews has been born and they have gone to worship him. And that word worship there could mean as little as we have gone to, to honor, to, to bow down, to recognize this new king. But I believe Matthew wants us to understand it as more than that, especially when they bow down and worship at the end of this passage, that their purpose is more than just, here's a political ruler and we're going to go celebrate him. But this is something epical. This is something, this, this is a new ruler. And we may not understand everything about him, but we know he is important and he is more than just another king in Judea. Because they didn't come from the east when any of Herod's sons were born. They didn't travel to Rome when, it, when Octavian's son was born. But they've seen something and they've come to worship. And so it's, it's important. There's, there's a couple of, of Old Testament prophecies that, that really... Uh, fit in here, and one of them is from Numbers chapter 24, which is the oracle of Balaam, who was a prophet from Mesopotamia, who was summoned by the king of Moab to come and curse the people of Israel under Moses. Because they, and the Israelites weren't even actually attacking Balak, the king of Moab, they were just on his border, but he was scared, so he summoned this, this prophet to come and curse them. And, and Balaam was described by some ancient Jewish scholars as a magi, which was something interesting that I discovered as I was reading this. But so Balaam comes and, 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 and he tells Balak straight up, look, I can only say what God tells me to say. So I know you want me to curse these guys, but I'm just going to look at them and I'm going to say what comes to me. And he speaks blessing. And, and Balak, the king of Moab, is just, what are you doing? I paid you to curse these people. Tough. So, so they try this three times. They're like, well, let's go over here. Maybe you can curse them from over here. So finally, this is Balaam's final oracle. In, in Numbers 24, starting in verse 15, and he took up the, his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. So that's his prefix. That's he's telling who he is. He, he sees things from God. He knows what he's talking about. In verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. 
and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. And then he goes on to talk about the, the conquering of this star and this scepter that arise out of Jacob. So, that, so for, for a very long time, for 1,400 years, there's been an association. It's, obviously, it's 3,400 years now, but 1,400 years at the time of the Magi. There's been an association of a king from Judah, or a king from Jacob, from Israel, with a star. And then when we look into later prophecies, in Isaiah, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 9, he speaks of a great light that has dawned for the Gentiles. The passage I read from Isaiah 60 was filled with references to light that was going to be seen. The very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, just a couple of pages before our passage in Matthew today, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, he talks about the day of the Lord is coming when a son of righteousness, son as you win, with righteousness will rise with healing in its wings as a sign of the restoration of the people. The wise men have seen a star. A star is associated with the coming of the king of Jacob. There is going to be a great light shed for the Gentiles to see the glory of God's people. There is going to be a sun of righteousness that will arise. And the wise men have seen this, and that's what they've interpreted. That's what they have come to see and to worship. And they come to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the royal city of Judah, so certainly that's where the king would be. And they inquire, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod is greatly troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And there's a range of translation for that word that he's, he's troubled or disturbed. That could be terrified. That could be mildly upset. But when Herod hears what they've said, he, he immediately, he's upset, he's worried. He summons the scribes and the priests, the scholars of Israel, and asks them not who's going to be the next king. Because just before this, he'd appointed one of his sons, the heir, to, to inherit his throne. He asked them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. So even Herod, the semi-pagan tyrant of Judah, understands that king and star is important and it means more than just him. And he is worried. And so he summons his his advisors and asks them and they tell him, well, sure, the king's going to, the Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a small town a few miles south of Jerusalem. And they refer him to the prophet Micah, who said in, 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 in Matthew here, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
And the last part of that, the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, is not from Micah's prophecy. It's from, first, it's from 2 Samuel chapter 5, when after King Saul has died, and David is, is, has been ruling over Judah, all the people of Israel come to him. And they say to him, do you not remember how you were told that you would be the shepherd of the people Israel? Come and be our king. So this new king, he's not just a king over Judah, he's a king over all Israel. The, the people of Israel themselves summoned David to be this person. And if you look in the, in the passage in Micah, in Micah chapter 2, don't look in Micah chapter 2, that won't be helpful. Look in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it, it describes this king as one whose origins are from of old. One who will crush the enemies of the people, a divine ruler. This is the king now. They, they recognize, here, here are the magi. They've seen a star. There's a king. It's the Messiah. <coughs> Sorry. It's the Messiah. And so Herod summons the magi and finds out exactly when the star appeared. And then he sends them to Jerusalem. And notice what Herod and the priests and the rulers of the people do not do. They don't go to Jerusalem. There was something about this when I was studying this, that this, this Messiah, this anointed king, this divine ruler that they've been waiting and longing for has appeared and he's born in Bethlehem and Bethlehem is only five miles away. The Jewelasco in Gray's Lake is five miles away. Bill's Pub in Mundelein is five miles away. The AMC Showplace Theater in Vernon Hills is five miles away. That's how far the scribes and priests will not go to, to worship this new king. And, and as I thought about that, and I thought about the distance and I, and I was like, these guys, man, what lazy bums. They won't go worship their king five miles away. And as I thought about that, I was struck that so often I'm sitting at a desk with a Bible, I don't know, a cubit away, and I won't reach over and pick it up because I want to do something else. I've got other things going on. I'm sitting in an armchair in my living room with a Bible literally at my arm and I won't pick it up to seek this divine ruler. And even more than that, I will have the impulse to pray. And that's within me. And I will not seek this divine ruler. I will not turn and worship my God. These guys wouldn't go five miles. And so many times I won't go a millimeter. 
And how many times is that true for you as well? Hopefully less than me, but Christ is with us and in us. And so often we turn away and continue on, on, on the path of whatever, whatever day, whatever business. You know, as, as we sang in that song about prepare him room, you know, in the midst of our busyness, open your heart. How often will we fail to do even that? But true worship that really recognizes who this divine king is rejoices and worships and goes to him. And I rejoice that right now, despite what I just said about how far we won't go, we are gathered here, all of us, to seek and to glorify Jesus, to hear his word, to listen to him. He is present in the gathering of his people, in the reading of his word, in the remembrance that is communion that we're going to do later. He is present. And as I was studying, I was reading a sermon by John Chrysostom, who was a 4th and 5th century church father. Just this amazing, amazing preacher in Antioch. And he, he encapsulated another part of this that I had never considered before. At the end of the, of the Gospel of Matthew, or near the end, in chapter 25, Jesus is addressing the people in a parable, and he talks about the judgment, how there are going to be sheep and there are going to be goats. It's the other way around. There are going to be sheep and there are going to be goats. And, and he acclaims the sheep because they saw him hungry and naked and poor and in prison and they responded to his need and served him. And, and, and the sheep are, are, are surprised. And they, when did, when did we see you naked or hungry or poor or in prison? And Jesus responds to them, as often as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. So we gather together in his presence. We come to worship him. But we also go to the king by going to the poor and the weak and the captive and the sick and serving them and meeting their needs. That is part of what he calls us to. That is part of where he promises to meet us. Most especially in the needs of those that are poor and weak and sick and captive among his sons and daughters, among the family of believers. So as we reach out to the poor and the sick, we are reaching out in worship, in obedience, in honor to our divine king. And I don't even want to try and quantify how often I forget that. But true worship, true recognition of who this king is reaches out wherever he is. Whether it's in here on Sunday morning or it's lifting up somebody over at Winchester House or at Condell or in a neighborhood in Waukegan 
wherever we find the weak and the sick and the poor and the stranger. So finally, we go to him. We rejoice that he's come. I don't know if I ever actually said anything about that, but it's important to do it. And we worship the king. So they, the, 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 the Magi go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They make the journey. And as they do, the star that they saw appears to them again. And they see that star. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Whenever you receive revelation from God, when you receive his word, when you hear his word, let your heart rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Don't stifle it. Don't shut it down. Don't try to be quiet and not embarrassing. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy that God has come, that he is your deliverer, that he has spoken, that he has not abandoned you. And go in and worship. They went into the house and they found the child and his mother with him. And they opened their treasures and they gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And again, I don't know if you remember the passage that I read from Matthew chapter 60. But the nations will bring gifts of frankincense and gold. That was part of that prophecy. In Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, it talks about how kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render tribute how kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts, how all kings fall before him and all nations serve him. The prophecies of the Messiah were prophecies of the nations bringing gifts to the king of the Jews. And not just the king of the Jews, but the God of the universe whose origins are from of old. The light who shined on the Gentiles, who is a son that is born and given to us with the government on his shoulders, whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so as we approach him, again, let us not hold back what we have But just as these guys came with gold to crown a king, as they brought incense that could be offered on the altar of God, as they brought myrrh that anointed the sacrifices, they brought the very best of what they had. What will we bring? What will we give to one another and to those that we see in need? What will we give and what will we hold back when we have the opportunity to worship our king? So what these wise men found, the Magi, what they recognized and saw was not nothing but a child. They saw a child and they saw God 
who became flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh to redeem us from the power and penalty of sin, to raise us to everlasting life. They didn't know all of that. They didn't get all of that, but they saw this child and they worshiped him. And so let us, with everything that is in us, with our minds, with our emotions, with our checkbooks or our uh, PayPal accounts, with everything we have, let us worship him. So join me as I pray and the band can come back up here. Lord, we thank you again and again and again and we rejoice that you have come to set the captives free, to proclaim good news for the poor, to destroy the power of sin and death and that you have done these things. Lord, reveal yourself to us. Open our hearts and our minds to receive the word of Jesus Christ. To put all of our faith and hope in him and to worship him with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.